There has to be a change in plans. I don't understand. The Pelican Brief. What about the Pelican Brief? I thought that was ancient history. Hey, everyone. This isn't Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. It's Rachel. I produce the show. Leon has COVID. On this week's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael have a holiday treat. They're talking about a movie. Released in 1993, The Pelican Brief is one of the few legal films where the Supreme Court figures. In it, Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington evade assassins and a corrupt president to reveal the truth about the deaths of two Supreme Court justices. One critic called it a heart-stopping, spine-chilling, adrenaline-pumping, run-for-your-life thriller. Our critics have some notes. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have caused our nation to collapse like Ticketmaster during a Taylor Swift presale. sale mm-hmm. mm. I'm Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Some people experiencing like real PTSD, Peter, from what you just said. <laughs> Trigger warning. <laughs> Not me. For most Taylor Swift fans, it was the first time anything in their life had gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty traumatic stuff. <laughs> By also an outdated reference, even as we record, uh, and we're going to release this in like a couple weeks. So by the time everyone hears it, it's just going to be unbelievably dated. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I, That's where we are. That was what I came up yeah. with. Today we are doing a special episode. In the spirit of the holidays, yeah. we thought, why not do something fun? Why not do something that would usually be a premium episode even and talk about a movie? One of the only movies, like mainstream movies, to ever be released about the Supreme Court. There aren't many. Mm-hmm. There are none. The Pelican Brief. Mm. Wait, I just noticed something. Mm-hmm. I imbibed in a little something before we started recording, but I mm-hmm. don't see that either one of you has a drink or anything. You're just no. You're going in straight on this. You're going in totally stone cold sober. I am sober, and you're right. I should have a drink. Yeah, <laughs> this is an episode that calls for. That's a drink. true. Should we get drinks? Yeah, let's get drinks. Yeah, I think you should. All right, yeah. it's already too late for me to go to the gym, so I'm down. Let's <laughs> let's get drunk. <laughs> right. Five minutes later. All right. We're back with booze and we're ready to go. <laughs> Peter, what are you drinking? I am drinking straight tequila. Uh, oh as, as am I. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> this is a true callback to our first episodes. Yeah. It's nerve wracking to record a podcast when you're not used to it. And uh, to help with those nerves, I used to get pretty drunk mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> during the recording of podcasts. <laughs> Uh, I don't anymore, but uh, every now and then, it's fun to revisit. (laughs) Especially when you're talking about the murder of two Supreme Court justices. Fictional, (laughs) of course. The terrible tragedy that struck the fictional world of the Pelican Brief. (laughs) So let's focus up. The Pelican Brief 1993 film, based on the book by John Grisham, Mm -hmm. it is directed by Alan Pakula, the... Film stars a young Julia Roberts. Mother. And might I say, a wooga. <laughs> Smoking, yes. hot. A wooga, folks. Ooh. Mama Sita. Yeah. My goodness. <laughs> and a young Denzel Washington. 
Not a bad-looking gentleman. Father. <laughs> Strapping, fit, glowing. Yeah. Some minor characters. You got Stanley Tucci. Mm-hmm. You got John Lithgow. Mm-hmm. You got the dad from Home Alone. <laughs> Cynthia Nixon. A whole array of talented character actors. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But Peter, sorry, I have to correct you. It's not Stanley Tucci. It's Stanley Abdul Tucci because he is is Arab in this movie. That's right. right. He's playing an Arab. And this is 1993, which is before the time when you could just put an Arab on a screen. But you could get an Italian. That was considered acceptable. Yeah. That's the swarthiest you could go at the time before people started to get upset. <laughs> I do want to note that the phrase Rhiannon used to describe a young Stanley Tucci in this movie was, and I quote, sex energy <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in our prep. He's looking very good. <laughs> he looks absolutely ripped. Yeah, he's ripped. Movie. Yeah. He doesn't give me this energy in other movies. He's not an unattractive guy, right? But like, yeah, I don't get this. Uh, this, which we got in, yeah. in the yeah. Pelican Brief. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you kill two Supreme Court. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, so, that's when Rhiannon gets the sex energy vibes. Yeah. <laughs> it's inherently sexy. So the plot. Yeah. Let's give a quick overview of the plot. Two Supreme Court justices, one liberal, one conservative, are assassinated. Julia Roberts plays Darby Shaw, a law student at Tulane. She starts looking at cases and issues where the two justices agreed in order to put together a theory of who did this. She finds out about an ongoing case where there are some oil interests fighting for the ability to drill near an environmental preserve. She writes it up into a brief, the Pelican Brief, and shows her law professor who shows some connected friends. Turns out her theory was right. In fact, the conspiracy goes all the way to the top. (laughs) The president of the United States is somewhat implicated by the theory, not directly, but his main donor is like the guy who's uh, at the top. Yeah. And so the bad guys get wind of the brief and everyone who knows about it starts getting murdered. And it's up to young, hot Julia Roberts and intrepid reporter... Denzel Washington, also young and hot, to expose the bad guys. That's right. Mm -hmm. We missed, I think, an important plot point, Peter, which is that Julia Roberts is sleeping with that law Mm -hmm. professor. That's right. Yeah. For no reason from a plot perspective at all. Right. I... Go ahead, Michael. Do you disagree? You think it advances (laughs) the plot? No. (laughs) I just... here's, Here's what I think. One of the central premises of this movie is that... A 20-something, left-leaning, brilliant law student who also happens to be supermodel gorgeous would be interested in a 40-something, hard-drinking, has-been with some authority on the law. And I think that's right. (laughs) true story yeah and and the movie's like she's right too she's really into him and he means a lot to her yeah i think that's right i think 40 something hard drinking legal has been you say hard drinking but it's pretty clear that he is like a full-on alcoholic to the point where it's a problem i'm not an alcoholic and i'm trying to relate here i know i know Don't kill the dream, Peter. Come on. <laughs> but there are like er, some of the early scenes involve Julia Roberts just 
like managing the alcoholism of her forty <laughs> something professor. So yeah. inappropriate. And the movie's just like this is normal. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think like my main critique of this movie, and it is a good movie. It's a fun movie, classic like nineties suspense thriller vibes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The main problem is that at a high level the conspiracy does not make any sense. Uh, There's just no need to kill two Supreme Court justices in this scenario. It's revealed like late in the movie that the case isn't even pending at the Supreme Court. It's going to be argued at the Fifth Circuit like a month from then, (laughs) which means like there's a good chance that it's never heard by the Supreme Court or at least like the merits of the case aren't heard for many, many years. Mm -hmm. This is like an incredibly roundabout way to get what you want if you're the oil company, right? And also, like, yeah, you're an oil company. Like, make two phone calls. Go bribe some senators and get some legislation passed or whatever. Like, that's got to be easier right. than assassination. Right. They right. are in deep enough with the president that he leans on the director of the FBI in this movie to not investigate this right. potential yeah. link. If you are that politically connected... Just do it legally. Right. Just buy the state legislature in Louisiana or whatever. Right. Like, <laughs> right. what are you talking and, about? And in, instead of doing some basic lobbying, they thought they would kill two Supreme Court justices. And then also when a random law student even floats the theory that they're responsible without any real evidence, right? She's just like, she's just guessing. (laughs) They then try to murder her and everyone she tells. People start dropping. Including members of the FBI at various points, which they seem to think will help cover this up. (laughs) Just like a trail of bodies that plainly leads to them. The least subtle murders too. Like one of the justices in this, like the movie opens with him just like clearly on death's door, right? Oh, um, sick as a damn dog. There are protests yeah. outside the Supreme Court and one of the signs says, die faster, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is an incredible <laughs> sign. It's so good. Almost 30 years before five to four. <laughs> right. Yeah. Someone had a die faster sign. And people yeah, are right. mad at us for the Scalia's dead shirt, yeah. please. And then like when the assassin kills him, the camera pans over like legitimately like a hundred different pill bottles. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the method they go for is bullet to the head for him and his nurse. It's like, why? Why? <laughs> why not just like he a was pillow? already on the way out. Yeah, just put a little pillow right. over his head while he's asleep and that's it. Yeah. Nobody would ever think twice about it, right? Like, it's insane. No, they decide to kill them both in the same night, making yes. it clear that it's one conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Right. One guy shot along with his nurse. The other neck snapped in a porno theater of some <laughs> oh, kind. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's supposed to be the conservative justice. And it, it seems like they just put it in for fun, being like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the conservative justice is a bit of a pervert. Mm-hmm. And the only time it ever really comes back is right after the president attends his funeral. The president is like, you know, that was the right thing to do to attend, no matter where the body was found. <laughs> Thanks. Just openly saying that they were contemplating not going to the funeral because he was murdered in a point theater. <laughs> right, right. It's so good. It's so good. You know, that scene where Stanley Tucci, Arab Stanley Tucci, murders the guy in the porn theater, it is emblematic, I think, of maybe a problem throughout the movie, which is that this scene is entirely too long. Mm. Arab Stanley Tucci is shown sort of undoing a rope belt 
like real yeah. slowly. And we think like, oh, he's in a porn theater. Like maybe he's going to jack off or like, <laughs> what, what are we using the rope for? Like, and then he just fucking snaps the neck of the man in front of him. But we really didn't need all of that before, you know? Right. Or after. Then he like slowly <laughs> pulls the rope back. Right. And is like, right. right. With the soundtrack yeah. to a porno, just like the sound of loud sex throughout. Yeah. It's excellent. I loved it. I personally enjoyed that scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, so first of all, we should say Stanley Tucci is like the primary assassin working for the oil company. There are many assassins. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's one of those 90s movies where like wherever Julia Roberts and Denzel go, there are assassins there. Right. Unless there's like a plot reason for them not to be there. Like if Denzel and Julia need to bond, the assassins are not there. But if they're just going somewhere, the assassins are there. That's and right. they're charging full speed at her. Yes. <laughs> In public. The assassin's go-to move is a full sprint, head down, making a murder face (laughs) directly at Julia Roberts in public. Sometimes pulling guns out of their pockets in a crowd. Right. And she's like running and screaming and people in New Orleans are just like, what the fuck is going on? Getting out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) At one point she runs through like this crowded kitchen, like this like commercial kitchen. Oh, yeah. They wreck an industrial kitchen. Right. And like 15 different guys are just like, as this other guy is like running after her, (laughs) they're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, these people have somewhere to be. Out of the way. <laughs> Let him through. Like, you, you got fucking knives. There's like a dozen of you. Like nobody's going right. to be like, hmm. That guy really looks like he's trying to kill that girl. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. You know. That were... guy looks like he's about to kill that 10 out of 10 bombshell <laughs> that just ran through our kitchen. You know, there are too many assassins in this movie because there are two that I don't even know who they're assassinating for. Mm. So close to the end, when they're leaving the bank, they like found the guy's lockbox and they're, mm-hmm. and Denzel and Julia are rushing out. It's a man and a woman who are mm-hmm. following them. Lady and assassin, yeah. The lady assassin. Who the fuck are they? I think they, they also for the, work the for the oil, oil company. company. Okay. It's not always clear. It's just sort of implied that they do. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, everywhere they go, there's more assassins. Yeah. None of them are, like, super competent. At no point is someone just like, let's shoot her from a distance. Like, they always (laughs) have to get right up close. There's one scene in the French Quarter in New Orleans where there's a guy who, like, hits on her and serenades her a bit. Yeah. And he's just trying to stall her so the other assassin can get to her. Right. But it's like, if you're working with the assassins, why are you flirting with her? You're right next to her. Just kill her right now. Right. In the private laundry rather than in the public square where you like follow her out to. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yes. It's one of those movies, and this is like a very sort of 80s, 90s thing, where like the bad guys are alternately incredibly competent and incompetent depending Mm. on the circumstance and what the plot demands. Well, and the main character is also sort of like impossibly a little bit invincible, right? Like there yeah, are some yeah. scenes that of like this chasing dynamic that is repeated throughout the movie with an assassin right behind her, right? Right. And then she'll like turn a corner and then the scene ends. And in the next scene, she's like waking up at, at the motel. <laughs> right. You know, and you're right. like, well, what happened? <laughs> right. Another detail about the assassins that I really like, as we mentioned it's an Arab Stanley Tucci. He plays an yeah. assassin who's also like a well-known terrorist. Yes. Middle Eastern terrorist. So this is kind of like 
if like ExxonMobil hired like Osama bin Laden to personally assassinate someone, right? To right. like sneak into the U.S. Right. and murder someone. Yeah. It's, like, it's nonsensical. Like, <laughs> the implication that like the best murderers are terrorists. Yeah. High profile terrorists. Yeah. That feels like a very antiquated concept. Right. right? Mm-hmm. The idea that like... This guy is basically like an Arab Navy SEAL. Yeah, right. that's right. Who is like a terrorist, but also like just working for money, presumably for an mm-hmm. oil company, right? Like yeah. What is his terrorist ideology? Right. I don't know. They don't explain it. I was Googling to see one of the actor's names and I saw like a summary of Stanley Tucci's character from the mm-hmm. novel. And John Grisham goes into like, a lot of detail apparently the guy's kills are listed like (laughs) yeah so it's very much in this era let's say sick (laughs) yeah yeah all right so let's talk about the politics of the movie a little bit yeah so one thing as we said the assassination plot makes kind of no sense it's so it's so silly in a lot of ways but the basic idea is correct and presented in a way that's like uncontroversial that like you have a pretty good idea of how Supreme Court justices will rule right. in controversial cases. And if you want to get better outcomes, the only way to do that is change the makeup of the court. Right, mm-hmm. right. The people who are on the court really matter. <laughs> like right. Who appoints them matters, right? Like they yeah. say multiple times the reason why they need to kill this guy who's dying anyway right now is that he might survive past the election and the president might change, right? Right. We need to make sure it's in a friendly president who's replacing him. And that because, you know, these are life tenures, the only way they leave office is is death, right? Unless right. they choose right. to retire, it's it's death. And I mean, so like on a serious note, we talked about this just in our last episode in the Sotomayor episode, but like where it's not always pleasant to talk about this stuff, but uh yeah, it, it makes sense in the broadest possible terms that you'd be like, yeah, there's a billions of dollars of oil on the line. Let's fucking kill a Supreme Court justice. Like that makes <laughs> right, sense, right. like in the abstract, like the specific details of this don't. And if the conspiracy was just we're a bunch of conservatives who want the court to be more conservative and so mm-hmm. we're going to kill a couple of liberals, that would have made sense, yeah. right? In right. the broad sense. They got too specific with the conspiracy and it stopped making sense as they drill down. Mm -hmm. But the overall idea that the justices on the court matter and when you kill them, (laughs) the politics of the court changes. That's viable. And that's like you could base an assassination conspiracy on that for sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It feels very much like in line with our theories and approach to the court. Right. And one that's like you know, considered déclassé or whatever, but it's heartening to see it presented as like such a common sense background assumption to a popular story, right? And popular fiction, popular media. Our our producer wants me to specify that when, <laughs> when I say our theories about the court, what I mean is that the influence of politics and the court's place in politics right. at the court and all that, and and for sure, we would never advocate for violence. Sure. Um, and so, <laughs> um, 
We've got to cut all this. Um, Um, You know, this other like hyper-realistic almost thing that the movie tried to do is show protests outside of the Supreme Court. And so like on the one hand, like, yeah, there are protests outside the Supreme Court. And so it's like something the movie like tries to get right. But on the other hand, (laughs) it just shows, first of all, protests all the time. Anytime somebody is at the Supreme Court. Every shot of the Supreme Court, there is a mob of protesters. There's a massive protest. Right. And then the second thing is that the crowd is not all protesting the same thing. Right. So there are like save our children signs and also abortion is murder signs and also anti-death penalty, anti-fur, pro-gay rights. Like, (laughs) yes, yes. All together, like just like any issue you're allowed to join the protest. Right. It's not really coherent. That also feels like an antiquated thing where like protester was like a type of person. Yeah. And there's a great scene where Denzel, I think, is running away from what's later revealed to be a CIA guy. And he runs through a protest in order to get away. Uh And he like grabs a protest sign to blend in. But if you look closely, he is the only black person in in the crowd of like a (laughs) hundred people. Yeah. Uh huh. Oh, you know what? Did you guys catch when Denzel, towards the beginning of the movie, when he's just trying to find out who his lawyer informant is, Mm -hmm. the anonymous lawyer guy, and he's like out taking pictures of him and then he tries to follow him on foot. The lawyer gets in a taxi and then Denzel tries to wave down a taxi. The taxi slows down down sees him and passes on yes. right. and Denzel's mad he kicks the taxi right <laughs> yes. there's so it's just like this little detail addition of like oh yeah this guy is also a black man you know experiencing everyday racism right 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 yeah it's funny because i recently did an unclear and present danger podcast with Jamel Bowie and they they just did a pelican brief episode oh yeah which you guys should check out yeah we want to say that we planned this and we're about to record it right when their episode dropped mm-hmm. and we were too far along to change our plans so yeah uh sorry Jamel you know we're not ripping you off we're we're fans <laughs> right <laughs> But it's funny because we were talking about whiteness in The Fugitive and the one I guessed it on. And he talks about the ability of the protagonist there to escape into a St. Patrick's Day parade because uh-huh. he's white and he can, you know, and it's so simple and like his ability to blend. Right. And it's very funny that like Denzel is that's not the case, but the movie's just like, yeah, but he can. <laughs> right, right. He just like stands out so much, but the movie's just like, yeah, but he gets lost in the crowd anyway. <laughs> that's it. Right. Right. <laughs> Now, we, we should talk about the first murder, the murder of the professor. Oh, yeah. And oh. the professor and Julia are just, you know, engaged in a love affair. And the professor hands off the brief to his, like, FBI friend, the dad from Home Alone. And then there is a sort of weird scene where he's just too drunk and hanging out with Julia Roberts and he's going to drive. And yeah. she gets into a fight with him about it. And then... He gets into the car Mm -hmm. and she turns around and she's looking at him and he starts the car and it blows up. Yeah. And it's actually a pretty good like shot of Julia Roberts in shock. Yeah. And obviously realizing that the bomb was potentially for her in the ensuing scene. And it was in my mind that like, I guess it's supposed to be sort of tragic, but at the same time, it's like, well, he was about to drunk drive. Like pretty... (laughs) 
pretty drunk. (laughs) Really drunk. But again, like Michael said, like presenting these kinds of issues just as like, oh, you get some like character building and not like this is fucking problematic. Like, (laughs) you know, this might have minimized deaths. This car. Right. 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 (laughs) One of the professor's last scenes, he's talking to his FBI friend and his FBI friend is like, oh, there's a new girl. And the FBI friend is like, oh, how old is she this time? Yeah. Um, so to be clear, this man is a serial predator, alcoholic, drunk driver. Right. Right. And he's just presented as like a character. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not yeah. like, look at this awful piece of shit. It's just right. sort of like, here's a guy. Julia Roberts is fully in love with him. Yeah. Right. A lovable yeah. character that our heroine who we root for is carrying a torch for. And that's not a personality flaw of hers right. at all. Right. She chooses yeah. Denzel as the press guy she confides in because the alcoholic was a fan of him. Right. She talks about how, you know, the professor would want her to live rather than take down this shadowy cabal mm-hmm. and all, all this shit, right? Like she's like honoring his memory in so many ways. Like, I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's weird to just see the professor-student relationship, the alcoholism and drunk driving, all presented without any judgment at all. Yeah. yeah. Just sort of surreal. Yeah. We should talk a bit about Denzel's character as well. He's a reporter at the Washington Herald, mm-hmm. which I assume is supposed to be the Post. And I think he's like relatively well-known. And Julia Roberts goes to him with the story. And he spends like the first chunk of of his arc trying to like convince his editor. His editor is like, I'm taking you off this. I'm taking yeah. you off this story. I'm going to put you on a stupid story, <laughs> a stupid story that doesn't matter. And he's like, no, I can, I can feel it in my blood. There's something here. John Lithgow. And John Lithgow's like, all right, I'm going to give you one more shot, kid. Yeah. Go to uh-huh. your remote cabin and think about this. Yeah. <laughs> Bring me information of some kind that, you know, means something. Meanwhile, like, what Denzel has brought him so far is, like, hey, this woman said that she, like, presented a theory of who assassinated the Supreme Court justices, and then, like, multiple people surrounding her were immediately murdered violently. Right. Right. And John Lithgow is like, are you going to, like, actually come to me with a real story? Are you going to come to me with this bullshit? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He says at one point, it's supposition on supposition. (laughs) It's like, dude, a law professor got fucking car bombed and the the head of the FBI's lawyer got assassinated. Right, right. And they were best friends and they had met like days before both of them were murdered in this manner. And you have a witness telling you. I know what's connecting them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. John Lithgow is like, when are you going to bring me a story? Like, yes. <laughs> what are you talking about, dude? This is a, even just a law professor getting car bombed. Like, <laughs> right. what does Lithgow want here? Lithgow is sending him to Little Rock to cover like the funeral or something. It's one of the, one nominees. Of the nominees. Yeah. One of the nominees yeah. to replace uh-huh. one of the murdered Supreme Court justices. But still so stupid. It's just the most boring shit. It's also very funny when later on Lithgow thinks that Denzel is dead briefly. Right. For like 20 seconds. Like not even. Right. Right. Somebody tells him that Denzel's car got blown up. And then, like, as he's, like, having a moment, Denzel walks in and that tension is gone. But uh, in that 20 seconds, he says, I knew I should have taken him off that case. And it's like, what are you talking about? That's like, <laughs> right. you're saying that, like, you thought it was too dangerous, but you thought it was bullshit. Like, that's why you said he should. Right. right. 
Right. You did right. try to take him off the case constantly. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> because you thought it was garbage, not because it was dangerous. Like, it's just so very ridiculous. Very ridiculous. There is one other Denzel thing that I want to mention, which is that there's this other guy who works for, like, the oil company law firm who is trying to reach out to Denzel because he, like, stumbled upon something. Yeah. And... Denzel has a conversation with him where the guy's obviously scared. Yeah, and he's, like, staying anonymous. Right, right. He, like, knows that he has something but doesn't want to reveal, like, his identity to Denzel. And Denzel is on the phone with him, and the guy's like, like, are you tracing this call? And Denzel's like, no, man, I'm not tracing it. I'm not doing anything like that. And the guy just hangs up. And Denzel immediately traces the call (laughs) and just, like, finds out exactly where he was. (laughs) And, I like, I honestly thought that they were sort of setting up like just sort of like a dark side of the Denzel character. Right. Yeah. But they weren't. They were just being like reporters doing report like right. reporter <laughs> stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he's just he's like an unequivocal good guy. Right. Right. But then it made it less believable of the multiple times after that throughout the movie that he assures a source that he's going to like treat their confidentiality seriously and right. do what they right. want with the information. Exactly. Right. I thought he was potentially going to do something to put Julia Roberts at risk because we had already seen him do it right with the law firm guys. I guess that they were just trying to be like, look, sometimes you got to do what you got to do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. He like goes and he like stakes out because the guy called him from a payphone, right? So he goes and he stakes out the payphone and then gets a photo of the guy when the guy tries to contact right. him later. <laughs> and then later on, he's telling Julia Roberts in a period when she still doesn't fully trust him. That he has a photo of this guy that they need to track down. And she's like, well, how'd you get a photo of him if you don't know who he is? And he's like, oh, that's a different story. And he just sort of smiles. Yeah. And we're like, like, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't worry about it. It's so sketchy. It's so sketchy. So sketchy. But the fact of the photo is also very hilarious because it's absolutely quintessentially 90s, right? Yes. That like he has a photo of the guy and he knows that he works at a law firm, but cannot figure out who it is because right. they don't have the internet. Right. They have the name of the law firm. They have a picture of the guy and they're just like, what are we going to do here? Uh, (laughs) It's a huge thing that they have to overcome that they don't know who this guy is. And the way they overcome it is by like going to a law school to find someone who worked there. And then the kid who knows is like in an insane asylum. (laughs) (laughs) He's in a mental hospital. And they go and, like, find that kid. And Julia Roberts is like, do you know this guy? And the the kid's like, yeah, it's like so-and-so. And then he's like, by the way. Beautiful. (laughs) It's just like a weird moment of like, they're like, well, what else would the kid say to Julia Roberts? He'd probably say that she's hot. Let's have him say that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) He tells her, he's like, when you walked in at first, I thought I was hallucinating. And she like apologizes for disturbing him. He's like, no, I'll jerk off to this hallucination (laughs) for the next three weeks. He was like, that's the kind of a hallucination I like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. This is a good place to take a break. Yeah. We're back. So we should talk about some of like the, there's not that much law in the movie, but there's like a little bit. There's the one law school scene, which is like early in the movie before the assassinations even. And the professor is talking about Bowers v. Hardwick, which we just did an episode about, where in the mid-'80s the court held that there was no constitutional right to gay sex. And 
he's like, what's the claim here? Yeah. Why could two guys potentially have sex in their home if they wanted to? And like every very stupid law student raises their hand with like a not really correct answer. Someone's like, well, they were in their house. And he's like, well, you can't deal drugs in a house, you fucking idiot. You can't traffic children in a a house, can you? And then, you know, someone else says something that's a little more accurate. And then Julia Roberts says something poignant. And he's like, well, the Supreme Court disagreed with you. And she's like, well, they're wrong. And then they like, have a little moment and you're like, oh, I guess they have like a sassy relationship where she's just hurting herself. And then immediately it's revealed that they're having sex and you're like, oh. Right, right. (laughs) It couldn't be that she's just like extremely articulate and strong in her convictions and a brilliant law student on her own, right? It's that this was actually some cheeky foreplay. Yeah, it's foreplay. It's fucking awful. Right, gross. (laughs) (laughs) One thing we haven't mentioned, although it's not that big of a deal, is that the professor is the former clerk of one of the murdered Supreme Court justices. Yeah, the liberal mm. one. And that's like sort of why he's like a little bit invested in it. And it's like implied, I guess, that he started drinking again. Maybe, right? Yeah, because he's like sort of broken up about it. Yeah, Right. And he's like, maybe I'll write a book about him. And then when he's like drunk right before he gets car bombed. He goes to Julie and he's like, you should write the book. And it's like, she's like 24 in law school and doesn't know him. What are you fucking talking about, dude? (laughs) You know, another law thing that's kind of um, that's kind of throughout the movie is basically like the process and the procedural posture of the trial below. Right. Like Mm. where the oil company is a party. And one thing that. I feel like it gets wrong is when Julia is telling Denzel the whole story and he's like listening to the recording of them and she's whispering. 40% of Julia Roberts in this movie is whisper acting. Yeah, it's a sexy whisper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She just whispers the whole time. And so she's whispering the whole thing to Denzel. And she says that at the trial, a three-person jury. Yeah, I caught that too. Right. Maybe that's like the state Is of Louisiana. Louisiana thing? <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was a Louisiana thing or they were saying jury when they meant like some sort of panel or something like that. I thought like that, that too. But this next sentence is the three-person jury found for the oil But the com- judge. Right. But the judge maintained the injunction. Mm. Yeah. So Right. It must be that Napoleonic code. They wouldn't get it that wrong, would they? Yeah, maybe not. But it's very funny that, like, they take so many liberties, but then they're, like, really accurate about the length of the appellate process Mm. where they're like, well, yeah, it'll be up before the Fifth Circuit and then it could be years before the Supreme Court hears it. Even though that makes the movie, like super shaky in terms of its fundamental premise. Right. (laughs) They decided not to just like fudge the numbers a little bit on where exactly this case stands. Yeah. Right. Nothing else makes sense. And they have like all sorts of weird liberties they take. Right. With like, you know, the assassins, et cetera. But they were like, we got to get the appellate process spot on correct. (laughs) (laughs) And I think maybe we should talk about just like the 90s-ness of the movie yeah. There's obviously like the small things. There's the clothes. Yeah. Oh, Fashion yeah. and hair. Yeah. Shoes. I have to like Julia and Denzel. Timeless. Pretty much rocking the same styles. Yeah. That they did. Right. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the characters are like relatively timeless in their style. There's nothing preposterous in terms of like the outfits or anything. Yeah. 
it's a relatively conservative bunch, right? We're talking yeah. about yeah. journalists, politicians, law students, lawyers. There were some like oversized suits and stuff, but nothing too crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's coming back, too. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about Stanley Tucci's outfit option when he is acting oh like the <laughs> FBI lawyer. So, first of all, he, like, finds out that the FBI lawyer that he's going to try to impersonate in order to get close to Julia Roberts. He finds out that he's 180 pounds. So, it shows Stanley Tucci stuffing a pillow into <laughs> yes. his shirt. Yes. Stanley Tucci is, like, what, 155? Like, right. he's really he's really got to be Like, up as if this. Julia yeah. Roberts is going to look at him and be like, no. <laughs> right, right, right. That guy looks like he weighs 160, but I was told yeah. 180. Right. <laughs> That's one of my favorite overall scenes is Home Alone Dad, the FBI lawyer, is hanging out in his hotel and he's talking. he talks to Julie Roberts on the phone and he's like, I'm going to go meet you and sort of escort you to safety. And then it like pans to the closet and you immediately know Stanley Tucci's in the closet and mm-hmm. he's coming to kill him and Stanley yeah. Tucci just like slowly slides open the closet door <laughs> yes. yeah. and then just shoots Home Alone Dad in the head Yep, listens to his recording of the phone conversation that the guy just had with Julia Roberts and then he impersonates Home Alone Dad and one of the fun gimmicks of Tucci's character was that he's a good voice guy yeah. and early on they have him playing with accents and yeah. then for that scene, he dresses up like a complete 90s schlub. He stuffs his shirt with the pillow. Yeah. He puts like a incredibly ill-fitting blue button down over it and like a red baseball cap and glasses. Just looks like an absolute schmuck, like like yeah. George Costanza on his worst day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then he does a voice impression of Home Alone Dad that is spot on. Like yeah. beautiful. <laughs> it's so fucking good. <laughs> it really is. It's so good. And then he goes and tries to like sneakily escort Julia Roberts. And there's like a scene where he's like quietly lifting up the pistol. Although yeah. he's doing it like super sneakily but he's about to murder her in like a crowd of people a full-on crowd of people broad daylight yeah and then he gets sniped at the last second and we have no idea what's going on until like the very last scene yeah that's (laughs) right right the director of the fbi reveals that that was the cia protecting her probably (laughs) maybe (laughs) they're not sure bizarre yeah the, uh, oh man, we got distracted from the 90s stuff. There's like a whole tour of details that were like very 90s. Mm-hmm. VHS tapes, extensive use of pay phones, mm-hmm. credit card slips. You remember those? She uh-huh. fills out yeah, a credit yeah, card sure. slip that you have to like, like. <laughs> yeah. I think like the most quintessentially, maybe not 90s, but sort of antiquated thing was something that Michael, you pointed out when we were discussing this is like. Journalists are the heroes here. Oh, yes. And the goal is to, like, publish a story. Right. Right? And once they publish the story, it's game over for the bad guys. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh There's a scene when they're about to publish the story where Denzel calls everyone for comment, right, including the evil oil company. Yeah. And the oil company guy is like, we're going to sue you. Mm -hmm. And Denzel's like, you know you got no case. 
And the guy's like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and he slams the phone down. It's so funny. He's like, so mad. gotcha right there. Yeah. Just like the proceduralist victory. Like, right. we have published the truth in the newspaper. Therefore, you are defeated. Right. right. And like, everyone accepts that as true, right. including the bad guy. And the bad guy's like, we will sue you. This guy is part of a criminal operation that has murdered like half a dozen people in the <laughs> past week and a half including two supreme court justices <laughs> including supreme court justices and denzel is just like you got no case buddy and the guy's like furious like, what? it's so good it's so good another really 90s detail is that like back in the 80s and, and 90s in movies whenever a car crashed it exploded Yes. <laughs> Wait, can we talk about that scene front yeah. to back? Yes, yes. This is the parking garage scene? The yes. Parking garage. Denzel and Julia are like making a slightly hasty run for it after grabbing some evidence. They're in a parking garage. They're in the car. And the car uh, has been fitted with a bomb that blows up when they start the keys. Right. And like... Denzel goes to turn the ignition like five times, but like Julia keeps saying something that distracts him. (laughs) So it doesn't Uh happen. And then he finally does it and it sort of like stalls out. She recognizes the sound from when she witnessed the first car bombing and they make a run for it, after which this incredibly 90s chase scene ensues. Right. Yes. Which I did want to say is a reminder of the earlier point about the assassins being like alternating between competent and incompetent, like going for the car bomb again. The guy is watching them. He could easily just shoot them as they walk up to the car. Like he's right there. Yeah. And instead he like waits for them to blow up in a car bomb which is like the same move he pulled before. Right. So she recognizes because the car bomb is doesn't work on the first try, right? You have to like really yeah. fucking crank the ignition. Just another yeah. one of those moments where you're like, why aren't you just killing them? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then the assassins who are also sort of simultaneously following them. So again, the couple, like the woman and the man, and the woman thinks that she has them cornered. So they run away from the car bombed car. And the woman assassin thinks she has them cornered by seeing their reflection in a car mirror. But not the mirror. It was the backside of the mirror, which happens to be chrome. Perfectly yeah. polished, super <laughs> right. reflective. Right. And she's like uh-huh. 30 feet away and a floor up. So she's like right. looking down. She's like And Julia and Denzel rather than continuing to run, which is their only hope of escaping this situation, yes. have decided to hide, which means in a parking garage, just sitting behind a car and hoping <laughs> that the professional assassins <laughs> in the same parking garage don't find you. But luckily, luckily, we have movie magic. We have 90s movie magic. Yes. Yeah. And how do they get away? As the assassin points her gun to shoot them. A big scary dog jumps out at her. <laughs> She's standing next to a car that has an open window and a Rottweiler. In it. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, the decision making is just awful all around. It rules. It, it, it rules. Well, I, the second time I watched this with Elena, there was also like there's a scene where Julia Roberts, uh, another chase scene where she gets the sense that somebody in an elevator 
is like maybe nefarious. And oh so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she waits until like the door is like almost closed because it's a crowded elevator and she like slips out and the guy gets yeah. stuck on the elevator and it's on the eighth floor going down to the lobby. And then she sprints all the way down, like all the way down, right. like racing the elevator. And Elena's like, would you go? And I was like, no, I would not go. <laughs> I thought about that too. I was like, she should have gone up. Up or to <laughs> stop at any of the eight floors, <laughs> Anything. nine floors <laughs> between there and like right. the, the basement where she goes, like the, the yeah. sketchiest, least public place to be. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but then like escapes to a service elevator, which once she gets in, it's like seen over. Right. She like got in the service elevator and you're like, okay, now she's safe. Why? Right. Why is she right. safe right. in the service elevator? Exactly. Right. Just, yeah, just silly 90s stuff. You got to have an assassin chase. One of the funny scenes to me was after John Lithgow, Denzel's boss, is like, you got to find me something. I can't just have a string of murders and something that ties it together. I need a real story here. (laughs) Denzel retreats to like his cabin and it's raining out. And he sees someone with a flashlight outside and he walks oh, yeah. outside with a gun, <laughs> right. uh-huh. just like presenting himself for anyone to kill. And he's like, who's there? And it's Julia Roberts, this yeah. young Darby Shaw. She's like, it's Darby. <laughs> and he's like, how'd you find me? And she's like, oh, you know, I have my ways. And it's like, well, if this fucking <laughs> 24-year-old law student just found you, then it's time to run. <laughs> right. Because there are professional assassins after you right now. Yes. But this is just one of those situations where they needed to be safe to bond for a little bit. Right. And so they were safe until the morning. And, and that was that. She also explains how she finds out where that cabin is and she just says I called your boss and said that I was your sister (laughs) the boss just gave it to him and he's like how do you know about my sister she's like "Mm, you know I got my ways I got my ways (laughs) he should have been like are you fucking kidding me my bosses are just telling anyone who says they're my sister where I am like oh he's at his remote cabin in the middle of the woods if you want to go there that's what his company's policy is. Right. Also, it's pouring rain and he's alerted to somebody being outside by like several barking dogs, which apparently he has dogs we never heard about before or seen again. Never. Right. Doesn't ever show him. That he leaves out in the pouring rain to patrol his property, apparently. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> barking just, dogs uh, are just like a sign in movies like this. Of something being not quite right, yeah. right? So he's like at home. It's like, oh, barking dog. What's yeah, going on? Exactly. Is there something out there? But you're in a cabin in the middle of the woods. Are these wild dogs? Who knows? <laughs> like nobody knows. She's also like, it's not like she's walking up a road. She's walking through, through the woods. wilderness. Right? <laughs> There's not even like a path. She's like, no. <laughs> she's like got like a machete out. <laughs> Just being being tracked by a 24 year old white girl. <laughs> 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 mm. One thing we didn't mention, I mean, we sort of alluded to, but I think it's worth saying explicitly that the movie is right about is that the conservative justices are perverts. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Yep. Grisham wrote this in 92. And in the book, it was a gay porn theater. And this one, mm-hmm. they don't show it, but you sort of presume it's straight. Right. But yeah, Clarence Thomas's whole thing was in 1991 and his 
pornography addiction was part of the hearings, and it's hard not to think perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah, perhaps mm-hmm. there's some inspiration being drawn from Clarence Thomas's life here. Yes, yeah, yeah yes. for sure. The whole film sort of wraps on the you know they publish the story, and it's like Deus Ex Machina, like the truth is now out there. And the good guys are victorious. Yep. Indictments expected today. Yes. The president's chief of staff resigns. Yeah. The president is not expected to run again. The bad guys are all expected to be, if they're not already dead, to be arrested. And like, we're just like, yes, once the truth yeah. is out, justice reigns. Yeah. Right. We were discussing this, but like, there's a degree to which you can see this playing out now. And it's just... Not how it goes, right? right? They publish a story being like, here's the party responsible for these assassinations and murders, and it tracks up to the Republican president. And then Tucker Carlson is on TV the next day being like, who is Darby Shaw? Right. <laughs> we haven't seen her. Yeah. There's a reporter that says that she exists. I don't think she does. <laughs> and that's it, right? And like the yeah. story just fizzles out. Darby gets murdered. <laughs> right. In Costa Rica or wherever she is. And the Republican president wins uh, re-election. That feels like a little closer to how it would play out now. Yeah. 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 So there is one other funny scene I want to mention before we wrap up. As we said, the president in this movie is not directly involved in the conspiracy. Right. But he's politically implicated because the guy at the top of the conspiracy is one of his big secretive donors. And... At one point, the president is talking to his like cold-blooded advisor about how to address the situation. And the advisor is like, well, if you want this to just blow over, you could appoint two environmentalists to the court. Yeah. And the president just looks at him like, what are you, fucking nuts? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, you fucking kidding me, dude? Yeah. Absolutely not. And then he's sort of like, well, what are our other options? And then the guy very heavily implies that they're going to commit murder. Right. And the president's like, OK. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, He's like, he's like, you just need to keep this brief from getting out. And he's like, OK, I'm working on that. And he's like, how? And he's like, you don't want to know, sir. Right. right. I like that. Which more. is Washington for we're going to kill people. One hundred percent. Right. I love that. Like the solution to this crisis was floated to him, but it was nominate environmentalists to the Supreme Court. <laughs> and the president yeah. was just like unthinkable. What the fuck are you even like? Didn't even say anything. Just looked right. at him like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Absolutely fucking not, kid. So one thing that I thought was very funny that that we haven't mentioned was uh, actually Elena pointed this out, but I was cracking up about it too. Is there's a scene where the president is in the hospital and he's getting just like a checkup, right? He's getting his annual checkup. Yeah. But like the set designers, I guess, just went crazy or like weren't aware of the context, and so it's just like his hospital room is like decked out with flowers and there's like a big sign that says like get well grandpa and all this stuff like he had been like in this extended stay in the hospital and like had like he's also in the swaggiest robe you've ever seen in your life this like silk (laughs) robe just yes with a collar like a crisp ironed (laughs) white collar it's so it's so good it's such a like a ridiculous yeah (laughs) 
Very good. Very good. And also another thing that like doesn't further the plot at all. No. Like the chief of no. staff is outside the hospital talking to the press and saying this is just his annual checkup. And then you go up into the room and it's get well grandpa and all these flowers. And you're like, and... maybe he's not healthy. Right. I thought that that was going to be a plot point. Right. And then it never comes no, up again. Right. Instead, he right. says the press hates how healthy you are. They have nothing to talk about. And he's like, oh, good. Right. And then that's it. <laughs> that's, it. that's such a Trump thing. He's at the yeah. doctor because he's so fucking healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I thought that was going to be a thing where, like, it turns out that he's about to die. And that's why he wants to Mm -hmm. make his mark on the Supreme Court. But no, that was just like a weird scene that didn't need to be there. I don't don't quite get it. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I feel like we've made it seem like this movie sucks, but it's actually a really fun, good movie. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I had a good time watching it. Yep, me too. It's like a little long, but other than that. Yeah. It's long. Especially like when you watch a movie from the 90s now, one of the benefits is like every fucking movie now is two and a half hours and you're just like, ugh, because it's all made for Netflix. Mm -hmm. You go back to the classics and they tend to be a little on the shorter side. So when I like paused halfway and was like two and a half hours, like are you you fucking kidding me? Um, it, It was a disappointment, but I am sort of mentally trained for long movies now. So it was fine. Yeah. There was a moment where I was watching when Denzel had barely been in the movie since like the first scene. And I was like, man, one thing that's dated about this is Denzel taking such a small role in a movie. Yeah, yeah. But it turns out he has a substantial role. Right. Yeah. It's all in the last 90 minutes, not in the right. first 45. <laughs> right, right. Like, exactly. Even though it's long, the pacing of it is kind of good and fun. Like, yeah. you don't really know the full scope of the conspiracy until well into the movie. Yeah. Right. Denzel's role is very minimal until, you know, a third of the way through the movie. There are a lot of ways in which they sort of like build to a crescendo that like allows that crescendo to play out for an extended period without it feeling unearned, you know? Yeah. I think that's right. And I think the other thing that makes it good is like it's well acted. Yes. Like it's fucking yeah. Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington, right? Like they're compelling to watch. It's it's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, Julia Roberts was like maybe 26 and she's like a star. Yeah. yeah. Movie star. This is only a few years after Mystic Pizza, right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking like, there aren't that many more famous, like, female actors, right? Mm-hmm. At the time? At the time, right. I mean, I think that there are almost, like, none now. Like, we're sort of, like, post-movie star in a way, yep. right, mm-hmm. now. Yep. But, like, she was, like, the top of the A-list crop at this time, I f- it feels For like. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's Julia and Denzel, like, a really interesting peak in their careers. Yeah. yeah I mean, Denzel had already done Malcolm X, and he won an Academy Award, I think, for Glory a few years before. Mm-hmm. He's pre-training day, like which I think yeah. is his true, you know, peak. Well, they both have like multiple peaks after that, right? right? Like, right. yeah. Julia Roberts will do Aaron Brockovich in like, what, the 2000s, seven years later? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Long storied careers ahead of them and also sort of behind them at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I guess if anyone out there knows Julia Roberts and wants to get her on the show, <laughs> uh, <laughs> she wants to hit up five to four, talk about the Supreme Court, let us know. Actually, we'll uh, talk about anything. Yeah. We don't We don't even have to talk about the Supreme Court, Julia. Maybe just coffee. And <laughs> <laughs> Julia, if you're still into hard drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Has been 40 something. (laughs) With expertise in the law. Law adjacent, guys. 
All right, folks. Next week, our second annual giving episode. Uh, Last year during the holidays, we did a special episode where we promoted a bunch of causes and organizations that were near and dear to us and to some of our listeners and just sort of talked about some of the work they did and uh, gave a little shout out to their uh, donations pages. Yeah. And we're going to do it again because it was... A good little heartwarming holiday treat for us and for our listeners. And we got some good feedback from the organizations, too. Yeah. Really proud of you guys. We're going to keep fucking doing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. We love you guys. All right. Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash 54pod, all spelled out. Follow us on Instagram. Yeah. At 54pod. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Spatial Relations.